Okay, so now we come to verse number five. So I'll recite the Pali and please follow me. Mata pitu upatanang Puta Dharasa Sangaho Anakula Chakamanta Etang Mangalamutamang Okay, so Mata and Pitu, the words are actually very much like, if you would see Pali, it's distantly related to English. You could see some correspondence. Mata is mother. Pitu is father. What is father in French? Pair. In Spanish? Padre. So you could see that there's some connection. Upatanang is support, service, service to mother and father. And then Puta is literally son, <laughs> but the commentary says that Puta here represents both sons and daughters, and Dara is wife, or we could say maybe to make, <laughs> again, to make it gender neutral, we could say spouse, but actually in the Indian society towards which this is addressed, it would be the husband who supports the wife and children. So Sangaho is maintaining of wife and children. And then Anakula Kamanta, here Kamanta would mean an occupation, some means, some action, which is a means of livelihood. And Anakula means literally not entangled, not confused. So here it's rendered as a harmless occupation, or we could say an honest, harmless occupation. So this is the highest blessing. And actually, verse number six, I think we can recite this together. Since these two verses, the way I see it, belong, are closely connected. So let's recite this together and then I'll explain them both in sequence. So, dhanancha, dham, okay, okay, dhanancha, Dhammacharyacha Nyata Kanancha Sangaho Anavajani Kamani Etang Mangalamuttamang. So Danang, or this is Dana, giving or generosity. Then Dhammacharya means charya is conduct, <clears throat> and this is conduct that's guided by the Dhamma, or conduct in accordance with Dhamma. So here, Dhamma in one sense can mean righteousness. So this is righteous conduct, which doesn't mean self-righteous conduct. Often, r- righteous is misunderstood to mean self-righteousness, but this means conduct in accordance with basic, fundamental moral law of Dhamma. Then, Nyata Kanancha Sangaho, this is supporting one's relatives, 
and then anavajani means blameless and here kamani is being used and not in that loaded sense of karma as a force determining one's destiny but in the original ordinary sense of simply deeds or actions so blameless actions blameless deeds this is the supreme mangala the supreme blessing and if we go to the ground plan, you, we could see how these two verses fit together. Both of them pertain to this heading that I use called leading a virtuous life in the world. And then verse number five is concerned primarily with fulfilling one's family responsibilities. And then verse six takes one's responsibility or duties beyond the family to relating it to one's community and even the whole society. So I call, I give this verse the title, Becoming a Pillar of Society. Becoming one who is able to benefit the whole society. Okay, so the first of these is to support one's parents. And this is a particular factor that the Buddha placed a great deal of emphasis on. It's a little difficult juggling so many files around. Okay, so the Buddha says in one sutta, he says that there are two persons that are not easily repaid. Who are those two? One's mother and father. He says, even if one should carry about one's mother on one shoulder and one's father on the other shoulder, one would, and even though Doing so, one should live a hundred years. Even by that, one would not do enough for one's parents, nor one would one repay them. For what reason? Parents are of great help to their children. They, I could say, they give life to them. First of all, they give life to them. They bring them up, feed them, introduce them to the world. And sometimes... I mean, I know in America and probably all over the world, people sometimes have difficulty in their relationship with their parents. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's quite true. And parents have difficulty in their relationship with their children. But still, I think if one reflects, one could find grounds for feeling at least gratitude towards one's parents even if they've given one a hard time in one's life. Because first, one's parents has, have given birth to one. 
So this very body comes from one's parents. And then during one's infancy, when one was a helpless infant, at least one's mother took care of one. And hopefully, if it was a harmonious family, both parents. And so when we reflect upon this, it will help us develop some sense of gratitude towards our parents, that the mother went through so much trouble to feed us. And with the case of many mothers, you know, they would even love their children so much that they would undergo great hardship to ensure that their children are able to live. And if we think that our father went every day out to work, sometimes at jobs with which he was not really satisfied, but he would work to earn an income, not in order so that he could enjoy pleasures himself, though perhaps some people have that experience, but basically to earn an income in order to support his wife and the children. And so going out, I remember when I was in college, sometimes I would hear my father getting up early in the morning while I'm still lying in bed, and he's you know, getting washed and making his breakfast, and then I hear him leave the house, and I would think, wow, he's going out to work just for me and my sister, and I'm such a lazy, good-for-nothing fellow, but he's working so hard for me. So when one reflects in this way, it develops some sense of gratitude and a sen even a sense of obligation towards one's parents. And I have some, I typed or written out some notes. So how to deal with the problem of abusive or neglectful parents, what, people with whom one has, has difficult relations. So I said one should still think of them with gratitude for the good they have done to you and try to feel compassion for them in regard to the difficulties that they might have caused you. And remember that they are human beings with problems of their own. Like if they abused you or neglected you, they might have been abused or neglected when they were children by their parents. And so this is a kind of almost like a curse that's been passed down from previous generations to them. And they tried to pass it on to you, but you have the power to become the person in this chain that breaks the continuity, the broken link, so that instead of becoming angry and resentful towards them, you develop compassion for them and try to develop an attitude, generate an attitude of forgiveness towards them and the wish for their true welfare. Okay, and then the Buddha explains how children can truly benefit their parents. He says, one who encourages his unbelieving parents that is, the parents don't have any trust or confidence in the Buddha Dharma. So if one can settle and establish them in faith in the Buddha Dharma, that is a good thing. If the parents are behaving, behave immorally, don't follow any kind of moral code of conduct, 
one encourages them in sila, establishes them in sila, in virtuous behavior. If the parents are selfish and miserly, you turn them around and you establish them in, in generosity. And if the parents are ignorant, then one tries to establish them in wisdom. Then the Buddha says, such a one does enough for his parents. He repays them and more than repays them for what they have done. And then there is a sutta. Again, this is a sutta that I mentioned, I think, this morning. Very beautiful sutta called the Sigalika Sutta, in which there's a section called Worshipping the Six Directions. One time when the Buddha was on walking on a tour, he saw a young Brahmin man who was worshipping, bowing down to the different directions, the north, east, south, west, above and below. And then the Buddha realized that this young man has good potential, but he had this misunderstanding of what it means to worship the six directions. So the Buddha asked, what are you doing, young man? The young man said, my father, when he was dying, told me to worship the six directions. So that's what I'm doing. And then the Buddha said, well, what you're doing is one way of worshiping the six directions. But that's not the way to worship the six directions in the teaching of the noble ones. And the young man said, what is the way to worship the six directions in the teaching of the noble ones? Then the Buddha explained this in terms of six pairs of reciprocal duties. And one of these, the first of these, the worshiping of the eastern direction, concerns the relationship between parents and children. So children worship the eastern direction in relation to their parents, so they should support them in old age. And I have to say, in this country, because we've broken up the extended family into the nuclear family, and so when the children grow up, they depart, and the parents are left alone. And then when they get old and helpless, nobody to look after them, so they have to go into homes for old people. But in the traditional cultures, people live in an extended family, and so the children, at least one of the children, can take care of the parents in their old age and then perform their duties for them, keep up the family tradition, maintain charities or other kind of good deeds that they might have supported, make oneself worthy of one's inheritance, or even make oneself worthy of the family name by cultivating an upright moral character. And then when the parents pass away, it doesn't mean that they are gone forever and one can't do anything for them. But within the traditional Indian belief system, including the Buddha system, what one does after their deaths is that one de does meritorious deeds in their memory and then shares the merits with them. So one thinks, for example, Say my parents pass away. In fact, I did this when my mother passed away, when I was still living in Sri Lanka. I had organized a Sangi Kadana, that's an alms offering to 
a large number of monks and several nuns. And then I did the sharing of the merit. So may the merit, any merit that I created through this alms offering, be shared with my departed mother. And then in the Buddhist tradition, this is done annually. So every year on the anniversary of the parent's death, one does a special, any kind of meritorious deed. And then in one's mind, one shares the merit with them, sort of telling them wherever they might be that I have done such a good deed on your behalf. May you rejoice in that deed. And if you're in some realm of suffering, by rejoicing, may you be released from it. Okay, the next factor here is how children, I'm sorry, how parents should look after their children. This is one of the, the, the second blessing in this verse. Puta dharasa sangaho, so supporting a wife, we'll come to the wife in a moment, supporting the children. So how do parents look after their children? Restrain them from evil. Maybe evil seems like a heavy word, but let's say restrain them from any kind of misconduct. And I'll give an example of this in a moment. Encourage them to do good. Teach them some skill. Remember, this is ancient India, but now we would say provide for their education, make sure that they're enrolled in school, maybe help them with their homework, make sure that they're diligent in doing and keeping up with their studies. Okay, this doesn't quite work. <laughs> Find a suitable marriage partner for them. <laughs> and <laughs> in Sri Lanka, in the Sunday papers, <laughs> there's a column where parents put in like notices where they're seeking a marriage partner for their, usually it's parents of a, a girl seeking a marriage partner for their daughter. So I would see. <laughs> parents of a, parents seeking a partner for their daughter. She is age 32. <laughs> she has such degrees, working at such a job. Um, <laughs> okay, so now, you know, this would maybe not be so applicable today, but still I think parents should get to know the prospective marriage partner of their child and give some advice to the child in case they could see right away that the son or daughter is making a bad choice, but have to do it in a skillful way, not in a way that's going to further the rebellious nature of the child, so they'll do something just to spite the parent. And then in due time, give them their inheritance. So I said I would give a particular spe specific personal example of restrain them from evil. Who was that person who was doing evil when he was a little kid? <laughs> okay. I grew up in Brooklyn, the great borough of Brooklyn, 52nd Street near 12th Avenue. 
on the corner of 51st Street and 12th Avenue, there was a stationery store. And as I was one day, I think I must have been about eight years old, was walking by the stationery store, I look in the window, and there's a box with a pen and pencil set. And I look at it, and you know how some visual images that you encounter stick in the mind and obsess one? So I saw that pen and pencil set, and I couldn't get it out of my mind. I keep on going back to look at the pen and pencil set, then go back to my parents, Mommy, Daddy, can you buy me a pen and pencil set, pen and pencil set? They give me a ballpoint pen. This is a pen, good enough, you use it. Maybe good enough for them, not good enough for me. <laughs> it was almost like, I get that pen or pencil set, or, or I'm gone. <laughs> so one day, Mommy is in the other room, I'm in the kitchen, and Mommy's purse is on the kitchen. So I know what's in the purse, I know I have to get that pen and pencil set. I open the purse. Maybe in those days, I don't know how, I don't remember what the pen and pencil set was costing, maybe three dollars. So I take out a few dollars, go to the store, buy the pen and pencil set, come back. I have it in my room. A day or two later, my mother comes up to me and says, Jeffrey, that was my name, how did you get this pen and pencil set? Um, 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 grandma gave me the money. (laughs) Which was not a very intelligent thing to do because we were living on the ground floor and grandma was living on the second floor. (laughs) And so, with trepidation, I hear on the steps, dup, 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 dup. Then a few moments later, coming down, dup, 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 dup. And then my mother, I think then she consulted with my father and they called me. And what they said to me was that in stealing, you did something wrong, but you did something else that was wrong. That when you were interrogated, you told a lie. And they said that even if you do something wrong, you should never try to cover it up with a falsehood. And that lesson, I might have been eight, ten years old, but it's always stuck with me in my mind. But (laughs) it doesn't mean that I didn't tell lies after that. but it was at least something that remained with me. Okay, then we come to the relationship, husband and wife. And I mean, this is one of the things that impressed me so much, even in my early early encounters with Buddhism. You know, I would be reading teachings on like the philosophy, the philosophical teachings on like 
impermanent, <coughs> dukkha, non-self, dependent origination, the different types of conditionality, four noble truths. I was thinking all of <coughs> this extremely profound teachings. <coughs> Excuse me. But I still had some question in my mind. Is the Buddha really fully and perfectly enlightened one? Then when I came across this sutta and saw this passage on the way the husband treats the wife, should treat the wife and the wife should treat the husband, I saw that this is incredible that somebody who could become like a renunciant, you know, leaving the palace, I have to say also leaving his own wife and child, <laughs> but then reaching what is taken to be the highest enlightenment could still teach these very fundamental, basic, household responsibilities of a married couple struck me as remarkable. Okay. Especially in ancient India, where there was always this idea that the husband is the absolute ruler of the house and everybody else has to obey the husband. So the husband, the way he should treat his wife, by honoring her, not disparaging her or belittling her, being faithful to her, relinquishing authority to her, and by providing her even with ornaments. And then the wife showing compassion to her husband. And we have to remember again that this is India in the fifth century BC. So it's not the case that the wife is going out to an office to work at a job or becoming CEO of a company or prime minister. But her job in the traditional Indian worldview is to look after the household. And so she properly arranges her work. She shows hospitality to the relatives of her husband. And particularly in the Indian family, when the wife when the wife gets married, she will go to live in the extended family of the husband, and so she has to treat her parents-in-law respectfully, but also show hospitality to the other relatives. She remains faithful to him, and then when the husband makes earnings at his work, he's supposed to give the earnings over to the wife to take care of, of, his, of his earnings and she protects them, maintains them, and then she's skillful and diligent in all her tasks. There's some more advice of the Buddha or statements about the relationship between husbands and wives. So we have four kinds of marriages. So one kind is a wretch, the literal word means a corpse lives together with a wretch. A wretch lives together with a goddess. A god lives together with a wretch. And a god lives together with a goddess. Okay, so the first, we always start with the negative and work towards the positive. So how does the wretch live together with the wretch? So here the husband is one who 
violates the five precepts. So he's immoral of bad character and he lives with a heart that's obsessed by miserliness and he abuses and reviles ascetics and Brahmins, those who have renounced to lead a religious life, while his wife is exactly the same in all respects. So that's the negative type of marriage. Both husband and wife don't observe the precepts. They're selfish and miserly, and they're disrespectful towards people leading a renunciate spiritual life. Let's go to the positive side. Okay, the positive side is how a god lives together with a goddess. Okay, here the husband is one who observes the five precepts. So he is virtuous of good character and he dwells at home with the heart free from miserliness. In other words, he's generous and he does not abuse and refile ascetics and Brahmins but he is respectful towards the religious. And then his wife is exactly the same in all respects. So that is how the God lives together with the goddess. Okay, then we come to the third line in this verse with the third mangala or blessing, which is a harmless occupation, a mode of livelihood that doesn't inflict harm on anyone. Let me jump to first, the Buddha mentions five types of wrong livelihood. So this comes, this is actually an elaboration of the factor, the fifth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, right livelihood. So at the outset, one should avoid five kinds of trades or businesses. So the five are trading in weapons. And this is in the Buddha's time, you know, when weapons were just probably just knives, spears. Now we have these massive weapons industries, which really thrive on global conflict and probably surreptitiously encourage the Department of Defense, the State Department, the executive branch to maintain these wars in order to keep their business at a high pitch, you know, what they call the military-industrial complex. So it's not only the military as a branch of government, but there is the corporations, the weapons corporations, which employ, employ probably I don't know, hundreds and thousands of people, even more, in order to making weapons of mass destruction. And so, and then what becomes very insidious is that there are the, all of these indirect connections which can create moral quandaries for people. Like if I'm working for a company that has several branches, one is a weapons manufacturer, the other might be just machinery to be used for producing an automobile, for parts of automobiles. Do I continue working for that company or should I leave to find some other employment? 
trading in living beings. This can include involvement in the slave trade, which still continues in subtle ways, dealing in prostitution, in many cases not the prostitutes themselves who are sort of kidnapped and then forced into this line of work, but the pimps and the agents, those who are involved in trafficking women and children, children who are forcibly abducted and sold for adoption, and what goes on in India, sometimes children are kidnapped and then they're physically maimed in order to be put out and to work as beggars. And then what they gain through their begging, most of it is taken by the people who kidnap them. And then dealing in living beings would also include animals which are raised and sold for slaughter. Then trading in meat, this is where one is not actually killing the animal oneself, which would be trading in living beings, but one is still dealing in the meat. Because in this sense, one is indirectly involved in the killing of living beings. Trading in intoxicants, you know, selling liquor and, drug, and drugs, drug dealing, very big business here in the United Well because of the global networks, it's a very big business throughout the world. And then trading in poisons, poisons, things that we used to poison other people. But I have here a note including insecticides and chemicals used in experiments on animals. Then I have a note for some other types of wrong livelihood. This would be crooked livelihood where the products themselves don't fall into these categories. The products are legitimate, but one is using unethical ways to market them. For example, false advertising, using distorted statistics to promote one's product, using false weights and measures. Here in the US, probably weights and measures are pretty carefully calculated, but in more traditional countries, seems to be a common practice. And also within one's work, accepting bribes and giving bribes to gain special favors. Perhaps we could include here the, the quite legitimate and respectful corporations which lobby politicians in order to enact laws that are harmful to people, but would serve the benefits of the corporations. And we could include here, like, I mean, pharmaceutical corporations. This is quite a genuine fact. In research on some many of their medicines, their drugs, they find out through research that the drugs have harmful long-term consequences, but they try in subtle ways to cover up the results of this research, to so suppress it or else to distort the results to give a positive spin to it in order that that particular drug will continue to remain on the market. And also, I mean, we could include here, I mean, a parallel example is that of the, <laughs> have to be a little careful because we have 
our Secretary of State now involved in the case, the Exxon Corporation, which back in the 1970s already knew that the burning of gasoline is responsible for carbon emissions, which through their investigations they conjectured is going to be responsible for global warming, climate change, and could have very disastrous consequences for the whole ecosystem of the earth. And yet, rather than publish this information, make it known to the public, and change over to a different product for generating energy, what they did was to suppress the information and instead issue disinformation and um, spread doubt and denial about the climate impact of burning fossil fuels. And now we have the attorney generals for New York State and Massachusetts investigating the Exxon Corporation for this. And so if they could have foreseen back in the 1970s that burning fossil fuels is going to have disastrous impacts for millions of people, maybe the whole Earth population, and yet they continue to market their product and suppress the information that, we could say, pushes them into the sphere of wrong livelihood. Then I have another pass. Whoops. Yeah, this is comes at the end of a long sutta in which the Buddha examines different permutations of factors relevant to livelihood. And he comes up with the picture, the portrait of the ideal layperson with respect to livelihood is one who seeks wealth righteously without violence, then uses that wealth to make himself, or we could say herself, happy and pleased, then to share it and do meritorious deeds and to use that wealth without being attached to it, infatuated with it, and blindly absorbed in it. So this person might be praised on these four grounds, for on each of these is a ground for praise. I can make this file available to people who would like it, you know, if you want to go back and consult these passages later. Excuse me? Okay, then we now go into the next um, verse of mangalas or blessings. So this one I give the heading, the subject heading, becoming a pillar of society. And so the first of these is dana, which is giving or generosity. And then we have a stock definition. So what is accomplishment in generosity? So here the noble disciple dwells at home 
with a mind free from the stain of miserliness. He's freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, devoted to charity, one who delights in giving and sharing. So this is the standard definition. And the practice of generosity can also be turned into an object of meditation. If you know the formula for one of, for the six recollections, we meet this, these, in several places in the Anguttara Nikaya, in the Book of Sixes, and elaborated in the Visuddhimagga. So there's recollection of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. Then the next recollection is the recollection of generosity. So when one practices generosity, then one can reflect back on one's generosity and consider, one uses this formula, that I am one who dwells at home with a mind free from the stain of miserliness. And one does this not to build up one's pride and think I'm a great, wonderful person, but when one considers that the beauty of generosity and that one is engaging in this practice and freeing these shackles of the heart through practicing generosity, whether of material things or of service to others, helpfulness to others, then it brings this inner lightness and joy. And that joy, as one reflects on it, intensifies it. It then becomes a factor that contributes to the collection of the mind and then eventually to the uprising of piti, delight, and sukha, happiness, and samadhi, concentration. And then there are many suttas in which the Buddha extols the virtues of giving or generosity. So here we have one, the five gifts of the superior person. He gives a gift, and this is particularly in the context of the lay community supporting the monastics and the ascetics. So one gives a gift out of faith, one gives a gift respectfully, one gives at the right time, one gives with an inner attitude of generosity, and one gives without denigrating the receiver. You know, this could happen that if one has possessions and one gives to others, one thinks, I'm benefiting that person, so I am superior to that person. But in this case, one has to have respect for the recipient. And then there is a sutta where the Buddha says, if people knew as I knew the result of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would they allow the stain of miserliness to obsess them and take root in their minds, even if they were down to their last morsel of food. They would not eat without having shared it, if there was someone to share it with. Now, so this is, I see this, a very powerful statement. I think I, I vaguely recall someplace that a passage, I haven't been able to locate it, where the Buddha says that when one finishes one's meal, you know, sometimes there are like remains of the meal, 
And when one is sort of cleaning the dishes, you know, in India, in Sri Lanka, one cleans the dishes outside because it's a hot climate. So one gets the water, one cleans the dish. And then there's a place where one throws away the residue from the dishes. So one should do so with the thought in mind, may the crows and other beings that live on the leavings delight in these left, this leftover food. So if one does that, the text says, even then one generates abundant merit. How much more so then when one gives to a human being in need? Okay, then the texts speak of two kinds of gifts. So we have material gifts, which could include the giving of food, giving of clothing, giving of shelter to those in need of shelter, giving of medicines to those who need medicines, and giving of many other things to those who are in need. I know certain monks who used to preach giving a car to those who need a car. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> and actually, vehicles is mentioned in the, in the text, so they would be quoting the Buddha and saying, <laughs> it's not enough to provide a carriage and horses to the monastery. Okay, so giving material things, and then there's the gift of the Dhamma. And of these two kinds of gifts, the gift of the Dhamma is foremost. And to give the gift of the Dhamma, you know, it's not necessary to become like an expert in the Dhamma and to be able to become a Dhamma teacher. If one could do that, of course, that's fine. But even if one can support the teaching of the Dhamma, that is providing the gift of the Dhamma. Again, the people connected with this meditation center who come to you know, organize retreats and teachings and set things up, and people who contribute for the printing and distribution of Dhamma books. Like we have a number of Dhamma books I see for distribution here and in the back room. And at our monastery, Chuangyan Monastery, it's actually Baus, the Buddhist Association of the United States. We print both in Chinese and English, many, many Dharma books, small ones, we can't print large ones, for free distribution. So they go all over the United States, and especially for prisoners. And there's one man who's in charge of that program, Mr. Tsuku Li, who's been working for years, always finding material, making arrangements with printers. There's a whole warehouse in the back of the monastery filled with boxes of books and CDs for distribution. So like he's not a Dhamma teacher himself, but for 30 years, I think he's been supervising the printing and distribution of millions and millions of books. Okay, so these are different aspects of dana, of giving. Then we have the next one is Dhammacharya, which literally, as I said earlier, means conduct, charya. That's 
in accordance with the Dhamma, so righteous conduct. So actually it seems like everything that's being enunciated in the Mangala Sutta, all of the items being mentioned here are forms of Dhammacharya. And so to get the specific meaning of this, I have to rely on the commentary. And the commentary explains this in terms of the 10 courses of wholesome action. Like this is the one of the most basic formulations of the Buddha's ethical code. And it's done very, very systematically. So the Buddha has three types of bodily action that are in accordance with the Dhamma, four types of verbal action, which I mentioned earlier, and three types of mental action. And these are called the 10 courses of Kusala Kama. Patta. The Pali word patta is actually related etymologically to the English word path. So it's 10 paths of wholesome action. And what is the meaning of this word wholesome, kusala? It has, the commentaries give it several different shades of meaning. One meaning I say that this is the psychological, ethical, and karmic aspects, that the, that the term kusala has psychological, ethical, and karmic aspects. The psychological aspect is a quality or kind of action that is psychologically healthy, that conduces to inner mental well-being. From the moral standpoint, what is kusala is what is blameless, or more positively, what is praiseworthy, what is noble, admirable, worthy. And then from the karmic standpoint, a wholesome action is an action which, when it produces its fruit, when it produces its result, whether in this life or in future lives, will contribute to well-being and happiness. And the opposite of kusala is what is akusala, unwholesome. That is, what is psychologically unhealthy, what contributes to, call it the the darkening, to a dark and heavy mind, to inner conflict, tension within oneself, and that which makes the mind rigid, volatile, destructive, destructive to oneself and to others. And then from the ethical standpoint, what is akusala, unwholesome, is what is blameworthy, what is morally reproachable. And then from the (coughs) karmic aspect, What is unwholesome is that which, an action or a mental state, which when it brings its karmic fruit, will lead to pain and suffering. Okay, so when we see the 10 courses of wholesome action, 
we have the three of body to abstain from killing. We say that the minimum is to abstain from killing, to abstain from stealing, to abstain from sexual misconduct, but to make one's conduct more positive, more productive of good. It's not enough just to abstain from the unwholesome actions, but instead of killing, one dwells compassionate for all beings. One tries to do things, one develops a mind of metta, love and karuna, compassion for other beings, and does things to try to benefit them. Abstaining from stealing, and you hear that, Jeffrey? <laughs> Not taking from your mother's purse, but being honest and trustworthy, then abstaining from sexual misconduct, and then being faithful to one's partner. That is, if one is a lay person, if one is a monastic, then one has to uphold brahmacharya, the vow of celibacy. Okay, then the four of speech, we already mentioned this morning. So abstaining from false speech, instead one speaks truthfully. Abstaining from divisive speech, one speaks words that promote harmony. Abstaining from harsh speech, instead one speaks gently and politely. Abstaining from idle chatter, and instead one speaks meaningful words in moderation. Then the three of mind, it's not non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, because those are very, very pervasive, but it means overcoming covetousness, that is the deliberate thought of taking possession of what belongs to others. And instead, what's advocated is being content with what is rightfully one's own. Then overcoming hatred, this is in the specific sense of nurturing, deliberately nurturing ill will towards others and wishing for others to meet with harm and misery and instead maintains goodwill towards other beings. And then one discards wrong view and instead adopts right view, especially in this case would be the ethical right view, which is the view of the efficacy of karma in producing its fruits, its results. Okay, I'm just going to go very quickly through the next two since I want to leave some time, say 10 minutes, 15 minutes for questions. So we have within this verse, nyatakanancha sangaho, so assistance to relatives and blameless actions. So we have here, the Buddha is speaking to his disciple, lay disciple, Anattapindika. He speaks about five ways of properly utilizing wealth. So he says, with wealth acquired by right livelihood, by energetic striving, the noble disciple makes himself happy and pleased. He makes his parents happy and pleased, makes his wife happy and pleased, his wife and children, his servants, workers and helpers happy and pleased. So that's the first proper use of wealth. 
Then he makes his friends and companions happy and pleased, maintains them in happiness. Then the third, he uses a certain portion of the wealth as a kind of insurance. He makes provisions with his wealth against losses that might arise because of fire or floods, <laughs> kings or bandits or unloved heirs. So this is, in a way, like taking out a kind of insurance policies. And then the fourth portion is used to make what are called the five oblations, like using a certain amount to support more distant relatives, to entertain guests, for offerings, this would probably be offerings in memory of the ancestors, paying taxes to the king, and then making offerings to the deities, the protective deities. And then the fifth portion of the wealth is to be used to make an uplifting offering of alms to those ascetics and Brahmins who who have renounced the household life and who are dedicating their lives to spiritual self-cultivation, training themselves properly. And then the Buddha praises, well, this is very similar, but just elaborates it. No, I think this is the one that I want. Yeah, with a beautiful simile showing how the family person benefits his whole family, as well as, I would say, all of the people in his community. So he uses a simile that based on the Himalayas, these great sal trees, the sal trees would be the Indian equivalent of California redwood trees, or maybe in the Northeast, big oak trees. They grow in five ways, in branches, leaves, and foliage, in bark, and shoots, and softwood, in heartwood. And so too, when the family head is endowed with faith, this is not blind faith, but it means trusting confidence in the Dharma, then the people who depend on him grow in five ways. They grow in faith because he transmits his confidence to them. They grow in virtuous behavior because he encourages them to observe the precepts. They grow in learning because he encourages them to come to the monastery or the center to hear Dharma talks and to study Dharma books. Well, in the Buddhist time, not books, but to go to listen to the Dharma. They grow in generosity because he, together they start projects to perform deeds of generosity, and they grow in wisdom, again through hearing the Dhamma and practice of the Dhamma. So in this way, the head of the family is able to benefit everyone in his family, his larger circle of relatives, and even the whole community, and that by serving as a model, one could benefit even the whole society. Okay, so maybe at this point, I'll sort of open the floor up to questions. But I think at this point, you could see how beautifully this sutta unfolds and stages, and it's taking in this very, very wide range of different practices by which one can improve one's own life and also benefit others.
So please feel welcome to to raise questions. Okay, please. Maybe I should ask for names so I get. Okay, okay, Beth. Okay. Thanks. Um, I see this word a lot, and I'm not. I've never had a real good fix on it. What exactly, or how would you tell something is blameless? Okay. I think, you know, there's not a, there doesn't come to mind immediately a, a, a clear criterion for that. But what I would say, it would be something that would be, from the Buddha's point of view, would be considered blameless by, <laughs> again, I'm going to have to use a word that can beg the question, by upright people within society. But the kind of things that the Buddha himself would say are blameless would be precisely, you know, as a kind of model, these 10 things, like being compassionate for beings, being honest and trustworthy, faithful, speaking truthfully. Yeah. So there isn't like one fixed definition. But there's a certain, I could say, a certain difference in cultures that could enter into this. Like outside an Indian culture or pockets of people who are following Buddha Dharma or other spiritual teachings, in many cultures, for example, the killing of animals is taken to be, you know, just harmless, blameless. You know, we, we're good, upstanding citizens, respected in our community and we go hunting just for the fun of it. You know, shooting birds, flying pheasants, shooting, going to maybe to other countries like rich people from the West go to Africa and hunt lions in order to bring back a lion skin as the testament to their skill and in, what do they call the shootmanship? Marksmanship, marksmanship. But from the Buddha's point of view, we would say the killing of any kind of life, living being, is blameworthy. David, is that correct? Doug, Doug. Doug, okay, Doug. Um, maybe this is better to ask tomorrow, I'm not sure, but I'm, I was wondering if you see a similarity between the teaching here and the gradual path teaching that he gives a few places in the suttas? Yeah, what is called the gradual path in the suttas, this is the Anupubasika, is the monastic training right, so that begins with the act of going forth into homelessness, and that culminates in arahatship. So it's, I mean, it doesn't mean that it's not possible for lay people to emulate that in part, but that is not to be taken as the model for the general society. But what we have here in the Mangala Sutta is a model that applies, or different parts apply to people in different segments of society. So what we call the gradual path from that, that particular formulation in a number of suttas in the Mangala Sutta, 
it's all compressed into very concisely. Oh no, I can't. It's all pretty much compressed into verse number 10. (laughs) Yes? Um, No. Hi, my name is Savannah. I'm curious to know... Susanna? Savannah. Savannah, okay. I'm just curious to know, it's an age-old question and you um, somewhat seemed to laugh earlier when it was mentioned, um, you know, how we reconcile that the Buddha or Siddhartha left his yeah. wife and child yeah. Yeah. in in light of what he taught yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just curious about how you how you reconcile that. And then also, particularly as a scholar, I'm curious to know if there are any, um, if that's actually mentioned in the suttas, if there's any kind of expression of... I mean, I know in the end they all live happily ever after because they join the Sangha and get enlightened and yada yada, but is there any kind of expression of, I don't know, regret, or is that, does he ever talk about that, or is he ever challenged about that in in his time? I know we talk about it with a contemporary lens, but in his time, I'm curious as to Did anybody like ever blame him or challenge him for that? Or or did he, how did he frame it? uh, Yeah. yeah. Um, Okay, we'll take these, there are two questions here. So how to justify this? What I would say is that first, the Buddha, before his enlightenment, when he was the Bodhisattva, he was not living in a poor family in which the family was dependent upon him for their livelihood. This was, I mean, the story that the Buddha was a prince, the son of a king, that is later legend. But the Sakyas were an aristocratic clan which had a small state, not a, it was a republican state, not a kingdom. But his family was a, an aristocratic family and an extended family in which there was his father, Sudodana, who was like a chieftain of the Sakyans. There was the extended family who was quite wealthy because his father had built, when, he, when Siddhartha was a youth, The father built three mansions for him, one for each season of the year, and he had lotus ponds. So he was living, he was brought up in luxury, and we could assume that his wife and the child would also be well looked after. And then I would suppose that he had a sense that there was a higher destiny calling calling to him compelling him to make this act of renunciation in order to to win Buddhahood and become like the teacher of the world. And I would assume he would have foreseen in some way at that point, even that by becoming a Buddha, he would be opening up the path to complete liberation from dukkha, from suffering for countless people, including his wife and, and child. So I think he would have had that kind of foreknowledge that that would eventually occur. And so the fact that 
the wife and child would be well looked after, that he had this sense of personal calling to a higher destiny, and that he would be able to benefit many, many other beings, including the wife and child, and his father and foster mother. All of that, I think, entered into his decision to take that step. Um, and something else. Oh, yeah, but afterwards, probably you know the story, when the Buddha came back to visit Kapilavastu, then his son, who's now seven years old, Rahula, comes to him, and his mother says, Yasodara says, go ask your father for your inheritance, and maybe she has in mind you know, the wealth that belongs to him by reason of his former position as, as the heir, as the prince, so when the boy comes and asks that question, then the Buddha says, what kind of inheritance, says to himself, what kind of inheritance should I give to him? Worldly wealth, which would just decay, or the imperishable wealth of the Dharma? So he considers the question, then he turns to his disciple Sariputta and says, ordain that boy. <laughs> and then he becomes the novice Rahula. But after that, then the Buddha's own father, Sudodhana, comes to the Buddha and says, when you renounced, I felt deep pain, and all of my hopes were then placed on Rahula. Now you've ordained Rahula, and my pain is even stronger. So please lay down a principle that a young person should not be ordained without the consent of the parents. And so then the Buddha laid down that principle. Um, okay, then your second question was, are there any passages where the Buddha shows that he had some regret about that or was criticized by others? Yeah, I don't, yeah, there are no such passages, but I think that there are some passages in the story in the commentaries where the Buddha's relatives, the Sakyans, criticize him. How could he, Prince Siddhartha, how could he have left his wife and child and gone off into the forest to live as an ascetic? That was completely irresponsible for him. And so when the Buddha came back, then the Sakyans were very initially quite hostile towards the Buddha, and that was one of the grounds for their hostility. But the Buddha persisted patiently and taught them until they, he was able to, to succeed in transforming their attitude. Okay. I think it's also Is important. It? I think it's also important to, to note that, uh, according to the. Um, uh, the uh, accounts in the suttas that the Buddha was divided and went through a great deal of uh, turmoil and doubt before he made his final decision. And even then, uh, he was actually pulled both ways before he actually finally left. There's some indications of that. But yeah. the fact that he, he struggled quite a bit with his decision, it wasn't done lightly. 
I'm not sure that we find that such passages in the suttas themselves, but in the commentarial elaboration of the story of the Buddha. I believe that this is what a... If somebody is familiar with the passage, please correct me. But I think that when the Buddha is sitting under the Bodhi tree, and then, you know, in the initial stage before he enters into the meditative absorption, then in the, le- in, in the legendary account, when Mara comes to the Buddha to try to you know, break his resolution, then one of the things that, Buddha, the, that Mara does is to show him images of his wife and child. Yeah, this could, could be support thing. Of his wife and child, you know, abandoned at the palace, and I think in some versions of the story, they have Devadatta, the Buddha's sort of malicious cousin, maybe trying to marry uh, Yasodhara and take over the second kingdom, the second realm. There might be that those kind of accounts. But he did like look at her while she was sleeping with his son, at their son, <laughs> and looking at her long time before leaving, he finally left, gazing at her as she slept with. with yeah, his yeah. Son. This is and again this that is, indicates a certain amount of division. Yeah, this is actually in the commentarial version yeah. of the story, where when Siddhartha is about to leave the palace or leave the room, actually, the, the family room. And Rahula, according to this account, has just been born that same day, I believe. So he's just like, you know, one day old. So Prince Siddhartha is about to leave that room. And then he turns around and looks back at his wife and the newborn baby lying in the bed. Perhaps there's some even temptation to give up his quest and come back to them. But then, resolutely, he steps out the door and closes the door, and the rest is history. <laughs> and also, one has to remember that like, I'm familiar with the Pali sources, the sutta and commentary, but the story about the Buddha's renunciation and quest has been elaborated in many of the early schools probably all the early schools have their own version of the story in which there are differences of details, differences of emphasis. So I would have to look at the Mula Savastivada, Savastivada version, what is it called? Dhammaguptaka version, Mahasangika version. For that, one needs somebody like my former student, now outstanding scholar, Bhikkhu Analeo. I'm not that widely acquainted with all of the other versions. We'll take one more question, then we'll have the closing meditation. Hi, I'm Dan. You're uh, Dan, is that Dan, you? yeah. Uh, so you mentioned, you gave us a, a practice tip of like looking for, you know, some of our faults and kind of uh, having, you know, strong determination or determination to, to sort of counteract those, those faults. I'm wondering if you could... Oh, the faults, yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can give any other kind of practice tips, things that in your own practice that you've found very fruitful um, to cultivating wholesomeness and 
cultivating mindfulness. I think we're going to come to the things like that tomorrow. Okay. Because this, the verses that we're going to be taking tomorrow morning are the verses that are concerned with cultivating wholesome qualities. And so we'll, we'll see those tomorrow. Then if there's anything that you want further elaboration, then we can deal with that tomorrow. Okay, we'll take them. We'll take your question, then we'll stop. Yeah, it's about generosity. And your name? Lillian. Lily. Lillian. Okay. So it's about clarifying something that was told by another teacher. Yeah. And what it had to do with was that your generosity should be extended to those who are worthy. And the way it was interpreted was worthy by virtue of their practice, their yeah. introduction to the Dharma, their right view, yeah. as opposed to just generosity to someone in need. Yeah. Could you comment? Yeah, I don't quite agree with that. And in fact, I would even say that the aspect of generosity towards those in need, in my opinion, not sufficiently emphasized in the discourses of the Pali Canon. But I found in later texts, this would be in some of the Mahayana Sutras, they speak about two fields of generosity. One is called the, gener the field of reverence and the field of compassion. And so the field of reverence are those people who you say are worthy by reason of their practice. This would be, you know, those... I hate to be always be praising monks and nuns. <laughs> it seems like I'm sort of trying to get things for myself. But within the traditional framework, this would be making offerings to the monastic sangha in order to support them, to enable them to continue to lead their life of renunciation, providing for the simple requisites, uh, robes, food, um, dwelling places, medicines, and other things that they need. And then the other field, the field of compassion, those will be the poor, the hungry, those who are in serious medical need and so forth. So I think when it comes to the practice of generosity, one always has to bring these two fields of giving into the picture. They're both equally, well, they're both worthy, though. I think another term that was used was um, where it will be best used, where your gift will be best used, and it would be best used by someone who is practice, who practices Dharma. That's a way to present it to me. Um, I would have to see exactly how, of course, best use, it's a little ambiguous. Like I would say, like a hungry person, yeah. people who are really suffering from you know, se severe malnutrition, for them, a gift of food would be best used because it's going to sustain their life. Whereas if I'm myself fairly well fed and somebody comes and I have, say, four dishes in front of me, and somebody comes with a fifth dish and puts it on the table and says, Bhante, please accept our offering. You know, for me, it's not so vital to have that fifth dish. Well, I have a problem with it myself, so. 
That's why I Excuse asked me? the question. I have a problem with that interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's why I asked the question. Thank you. Okay, so I want to now use the last part of today's program. We have, let's say, 438. Maybe if, to get it to 4.40, any, one, anybody have a quick question? <laughs> okay. Is there a woman here who's been married, who's experienced this problem in their marriage? <laughs> Can you tell them what I mean? <laughs> I think that there are a hundred or thousands of ways in which husbands can make cutting, sarcastic remarks to their wives. If the wife cleans up the house, don't you have anything better to do with your time? Or if the house is not perfectly cleaned, what are you doing going out with your girlfriends? Why don't you stay home and clean up the house? If they're bringing up the kids, the wife wants to treat the kid in one way, the husband has a different opinion, so he, even in front of the children, he disparages the wife, and that hurts her very badly. Okay, so let us devote now the final 20 minutes to a silent sitting meditation. In the end, I will do again the sharing of the merits, the way we did it last night. Now we're going to end for the day with the sharing of the merits. So I will put the verses up on the board, on the screen again. Okay, so now, as through this whole day of periods of meditation, Dhamma talks, listening to the Dhamma, discussing the Dhamma, then we generate, as I said, this punya, this wholesome karma or merits. And now we're going to share the merits with the Dhamma-protecting devas or deities, the nagas or dragon spirits, that help maintain the weather patterns, the Buddhas or the fear spirits, 
asking them to rejoice in this merit, to protect the sasana, that's the Buddha's teaching, to protect the desana, the expounding of the Dhamma, to protect ourselves and others and the whole world. Okay, so we could think of all of these beings and even think of your departed relatives and friends also with mind of loving kindness. And then you can recite along with me. Akasatachabhumata Devanagamahidika Punyantang Anumoditva Chirang Rakantu Sasanam Akasatachabhumata Devanagamahidika Punyantang Anumoditva Chirang Rakantu Desanam Akasata Chabumata Devanaga Mahidika Punyantang Anumoditva Chirang Rakantu Mangparang Etavata Chamhehi Sampadang punya sampadang Sabe devanu modantu Saba sampati sidia Etavata chamhehi Sampadang punya sampadang Sabe putanu modantu Saba sampati sidya etavata chamhehi sampadang punya sampadang sabe satanu modantu saba sampati sidya bhavagupadaya avici hetato Etantare satakayupapanna rupia rupicha asanya sanino dukkapamuchantu pusantu nibuting. And you say sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay, so then we'll continue tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. And then we get now, the next section, we come into really entering upon the specifically Buddhist path to liberation. What we've covered so far is we call the Dharma in its extended application. But now we'll come to embarking on the liberative path starting tomorrow. Okay, so we could end with three bows or half bows to the Buddha.
<laughs> I have to pay homage to the fourth jewel. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.